Hey everybody, welcome back to Now Let's Be Honest. I'm your host, David Tate, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, Walking Through the Gospel of Matthew. I won't waste your time with any extended intro shenanigans, so let's get to our main discussion. Today I am really excited because we are actually going to begin walking our way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we are going to be talking about the citizens of the kingdom. And what I mean by that is basically that the way that Jesus is going to start this sermon is he is going to identify the types of people that belong in his kingdom and the function that they are going to play. And then in the rest of the sermon, he's going to basically outline what he expects of these people and the laws and the standards that he expects them to adhere to and the righteousness that he expects them to develop, right? And so these first few verses right here are absolutely crucial because this is where we kind of get to reflect on ourselves and ask, okay, do we belong in this kingdom and are we going to find our place in it? And also we get to see what type of people Jesus is drawn to and what type of people Jesus is looking for. And so there's some really, really cool things that we get to see here. And I'm also excited about this just because by its very nature, this is a little bit different than the stuff that we've covered so far, because everything we've talked about so far in the Gospel of Matthew has been narrative. But now, as we go into chapter 5, we are finally reaching our first discourse, and we are actually going to get to see the teachings of Jesus. And in the teachings of Jesus, we get to actually see his heart being laid out on the table. And I think this is really cool, because we get to see what Jesus really, truly cares about. And so, let's hop right in. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I'm just going to read this whole slide and then we'll walk back through it. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, One thing I do want to highlight here, and we're going to see this uh, becoming more and more prominent as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, I do want to highlight that if you are watching the screen right here, you'll notice that there's two different colors of text. And that's because I have highlighted in blue the parts of the text that are explicitly unique to the Gospel of Matthew, whereas the things in white are things that we actually see uh, elsewhere in either Mark, Luke, or John, or in combinations of all of them. Uh, And so that's going to become prominent in other parts of this. I'm probably not going to emphasize it as much here, but it might come up here and there. And so I just wanted to highlight that to you so you were aware of why there's two different colors of text on the screen. All right, so let's walk through this. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. That first verse might just sound like it is just establishing the setting for what Jesus is about to do. And in many ways, that is its primary goal. But I actually want to look a little bit deeper into that and just highlight how just by the nature of where Jesus is at and what he is intentionally doing um, and the details that Matthew is choosing to highlight here, 
there is something being communicated. Uh, and one thing you just have to realize is that typically whenever you encounter a mountain in scripture, um, this is the meeting place between heaven and earth, right? And basically every single new creation, metaphorically speaking, that you encounter in the Bible takes place on a mountain, right? The Garden of Eden on a mountain, uh, Mount Ararat, whenever the flood resided, um, receded and Noah and them were on a mountain, right? Uh, so you have Eden on a mountain, Mount Ararat on a mountain, Mount Sinai where the law was given on a mountain, Mount Zion where David established his palace. It's on a mountain, right? And so all these very key moments throughout scripture are found on mountains and mountains represent the meeting place between God and man. And what you have to realize is that one of the big arguments that Matthew is making throughout his gospel is that Jesus in and of himself kind of is the ultimate mountain, right? Jesus is the meeting place between God and man where heaven came down to earth. And now Jesus takes his disciples up on top of a mountain to begin to teach them. And so that's kind of cool. And we also kind of see an allusion backwards uh, to like Mount Sinai, right? We've been tracking through the gospel of Matthew, how Matthew has basically been telling Jesus' story um, through the Old Testament, right? We've started in Genesis chapter one, and we've been working our way through the Old Testament and the details that Matthew is sharing about Jesus's life and Jesus's ministry have been paralleling the history of the people of Israel. And where we left off in Matthew chapter four was Exodus chapter 19, with God coming to dwell on the mountain to deliver the law. Now here we have Jesus kind of walking in the footsteps of Moses, ascending the mountain to deliver the law, right? So just like Moses ascended the mountain to receive the law from God, so Jesus is kind of following in the footsteps and he is taking the place of both Moses and God. He is ascending the mountain, but he's calling his people to follow behind him. And then like God, delivering the law to the people of Israel, so Jesus is going to deliver the law to his disciples. And we even see them surrounding him in concentric circles um, as he is delivering this, right? So he sees the crowds... And then the disciples come and surround him, right? And so there's the disciples are the immediate audience that Jesus is talking to. But we have to imagine that there's also a greater crowd surrounding the group of the disciples. And we don't know who all is meant by the disciples right here. Um, because so far in the Gospel of Matthew, we've only met four of them. Um, Peter, well, Simon, Peter, uh, Andrew, James, and John. Those are the only ones we met so far. But I imagine that Matthew might not be telling this story entirely chronologically speaking at this point. And so it might talk about more than just those immediate four. But you've got these close disciples right here and then the crowd surrounding him in a very similar way to at the foot of Mount Sinai, how you would have had the Levites encamped closest to the mountain and then the rest of the Israelites further away. And even whenever you eventually have the arrangement of the camp, in the Old Testament, whenever they're wandering through the wilderness, you have the Levites surrounding the tabernacle, and then eventually the rest of the tribes are all around, right? And so I don't want you to read too much into that and make everything a parallel, but I'm just highlighting that the, the details that Matthew is highlighting does seem to be a clear callback to the things that we've seen in the Old Testament, which is just really cool. But another thing worth highlighting just right here is that once again, Jesus is on a mountain. We've actually already seen Jesus on a mountain in this gospel. Right? If you go back to the temptation of Jesus, we saw him on a mountain with the devil trying to tempt him. And do you remember what the devil was offering him? He said, if you bow before me, I will give you all the nations of the earth. But Jesus resisted that. The devil tried to offer him kingdoms. And Jesus rejected the devil's offer. 
But now Jesus ascends on a mountain of his own and he begins to lay out his kingdom for all of his followers. And so there's this nice, beautiful parallel just right off the bat by the very nature of the setting. And so when Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, right? Uh, sitting was just the posture of teaching back then. Uh, nowadays we stand at pulpits, but back then they would sit down and they would usually raise up their hoods and they would begin to teach. Uh, I actually think that's kind of cool because it's like a posture of humility. And he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. And the really cool thing is that the way that Jesus decides to begin this sermon is actually with a song. Uh, he actually begins to give them a poem. And the way we can tell that this is a poem or a song is just by the very structure of it, right? It begins with the word blessed, 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 blessed. And if you go back into the Greek, there's actually a lot of really beautiful, like just semantic parallels you have going on here. The first few verses, all of them start with the letter P in Greek, right? Uh, and so there's some alliteration going on here. Uh, and it's even bookended, right? If you look at verse three and verse 10, you see that the promise is the same, right? You have blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so verses three through 10 form this nice little bookended poem and song. And this is the way that Jesus is going to begin to communicate the type of citizens that he wants in his kingdom and the type of people that he is looking for. And so what we need to do is we want to really just break this down. We want to figure out what type of people is Jesus looking for in his kingdom and what type of people does he value and what type of people has he come to save. And in order to understand this section, which we call the Beatitudes, we actually need to go back to Isaiah chapter 61 because in Isaiah chapter 61, we see Isaiah make a prophecy about a person who would show up and he would value people exactly like the type of people that Jesus is going to say that he values right here. So in Isaiah chapter 61, this is what we read. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh and the day of vengeance of God and to comfort those who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a headdress instead of ashes, the oil of rejoicing instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may show forth his beautiful glory. So in Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah sees this servant of God who will be anointed by the Spirit of God. And later on in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is going to identify Jesus as this very same servant. And Jesus himself is going to identify himself as the servant in the synagogue at Nazareth. And so we have to understand that this is who Jesus is, right? He is this anointed servant of God on whom the Spirit of God has come to rest. We saw that back at Jesus' baptism. And he specifically shows up to take care of the afflicted people and to proclaim good news to those who have been experiencing a lot of bad news and people who have had a really hard life, these people are going to find joy and redemption and restoration and salvation in this servant of God. And so just by the nature of Jesus identifying himself with these people, Jesus is asserting in the opening words of his sermon that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. And that's exactly what we talked about in the last video whenever I gave us an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus isn't simply speaking as a preacher right here. He is speaking as a fulfillment of prophecy. He is a prophetic figure. He is the authoritative king who is identifying himself with the people saying that he has arrived to change the entire world. That's what he's saying. 
Another thing we need to do before we actually walk through these individually is we probably need to figure out what the word blessed even means uh, because it's kind of essential if you haven't noticed to this whole thing, right? What does it mean to be blessed? And I think that really the best way to understand this is to just go back to the first time the word blessed occurs. Uh, and that actually shows up in Genesis chapter one, whenever God is first creating the heavens and the earth. Uh, he blesses things. And basically what we see in that context is that blessing carries with it the idea of flourishing and abundant life. Um, the way that one of my professors used to put it is that whenever God blesses something, he gives it everything that is necessary to fulfill its created purpose. Uh, whenever God blesses humans, he gives them everything necessary for life and godliness, right? And I think that's a beautiful portrait of what it means to be blessed because a lot of the times um, whenever we talk about blessing, we think of it in, just in terms of happy feelings and stuff like that. Well, as we're going to see in this list of, of things that Jesus is going to say here, these people are not blessed in the sense of how we typically think of blessing. Uh, nobody really thinks that you are blessed when you are mourn if you're thinking of it in the terms of how we typically use the term, right? Blessed, happy. Um, you're not typically happy when you're mourning. <laughs> uh, you're not happy when you're being persecuted. But that's because Jesus isn't using the word blessed how we typically use it in our 21st century society. He's not talking about people just being in a happy state. In fact, I would argue that most of these people are not in a happy state, but he is saying that these people will have everything they need to live an abundant and flourishing life, despite the negative emotions they might be feeling. And that's very, very crucial for us to understand, uh, because what Jesus is basically insinuating is that he is going to be the reason why they can have this future flourishing and this restoration that is going to come. Um, and in order to understand that, you have to realize that there is carried with this, this inherent understanding that the world is broken, right? The world is broken and things are not as they were meant to be. And therefore there's this dissonance between the feelings these people are experiencing in the hardships of life and the ultimate reality that they can experience through the promises of Jesus and the identification with his kingdom. Right, And so just by the very nature of what we see in these Beatitudes, we see that whatever is happening here is going to require radical transformation because these people are in a lowly and downtrodden state. But Jesus is telling them that if they identify with him and if they identify with his kingdom, he will give them everything necessary for a flourishing life, even if that flourishing life is not the type of life that we typically think of in 21st century American society with mansions and Lamborghinis and endless wealth. That's a very materialistic viewpoint of abundant flourishing. Jesus is going to give a different viewpoint of abundant flourishing, and he is going to give them an a perspective of what it truly means to be blessed. Another thing that I want us to highlight here um, before we once again walk through this is that almost every single one of these blessings are future looking, right? Um, most of them are future looking except for the first and the last ones right? The first and the last ones, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those are present tense. He is talking to those people right here, right now, both in his time and in our time. And he is saying, if these things are true of you, then you can be, consider yourself blessed right now because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. And that in and of itself is enough for joy and flourishing. 
But everything in between, verses 4 through 9, all of those are future-looking. And so these people can consider themselves blessed in the present because of their hope in what is to come in the future. And so that's really, really cool as well, because we see that there is this future hope a future restoration, a future flourishing, ultimately that God will do what he has promised that he will do and eventually Eden will be restored. So there is that future hope, but we aren't only limited to that future hope. There is a here and now component that can be realized and experienced by those living in the present world. And so this is where just at the very beginning of this, we get the idea that the kingdom of heaven is a here and now reality but it's also going to be more fully realized in a very physical and tangible way in the future, right? And so this is where we get the idea that the kingdom of heaven is already, but not yet. There is some way you can experience the kingdom of heaven here and now, but ultimately it will be experienced to an even greater degree into the future. And so let's begin to walk through these. And as we walk through these, I want you to really notice that in many ways, these blessings truly are paradoxical because like I've mentioned already, almost every single person Jesus is talking about here is a downtrodden and afflicted person. And so it sounds kind of paradoxical to say that they are blessed. It seems just counterintuitive. But what Jesus is going to be communicating through this is that these people are blessed despite their condition. And the reason they're blessed despite their condition is ultimately because of him. It's because their identification with him. And you're not going to see that in verses 3 through 10, but you are going to see that specifically in verses 11 and 12. And I'm going to argue that verses 11 and 12 are actually the key to understanding all the Beatitudes together. And so that's going to be really exciting. But just for right now, just roll with me. I'm going to argue that all of these things are true, not simply because of the nature of who these people are. Oh, just by nature of being in this condition, you are blessed. No, it's because they're identifying with him that they are blessed. And ultimately what he's going to argue is that they have to admit that they are lowly and they ultimately have to repent in order to experience the blessings that come from this. And so let's walk through these. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the idea of being poor in spirit, kingdom of heaven, those things, it's kind of interesting that you would put those two together. Uh, you'll notice that in the white text here is blessed are the poor. For theirs is the kingdom, right? And that's because if you go to the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't even add in spirit right here. Whenever Jesus is teaching his sermon on the plain, he said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so you might read the Gospel of Matthew and think that Jesus is specifically speaking on only spiritual terms, but the Gospel of Luke is going to highlight that, no, there is a physical component to this, where Jesus is simply saying, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the reason why that's paradoxical is because you wouldn't typically associate poverty with people who would inherit a kingdom, right? Usually it's the rich that inherit a kingdom, but Jesus is saying, no, in my kingdom, it's the poor who inherit the kingdom. Specifically in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the poor in spirit. It's the people who aren't going around touting their righteousness before everybody, but it's the people who admit that they don't have anything spiritually to boast about, right? They don't have any spiritual riches. They are poor in their spirit and they are downcast and lowly and they're sinners. Jesus says, those are the people who are going to receive the kingdom of heaven. And not only are they going to receive it, but if these people recognize that they are poor in spirit now, the kingdom of heaven is theirs now. Then he goes on, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This is one of those things that is 
future looking. Uh, and this is just a place of hope, right? Uh, because typically you don't think that you're blessed if you're mourn. Like if you're mourning, you wouldn't consider yourself in a state of blessing, right? Whenever somebody loses a loved one, whenever somebody is going through something really difficult, a heartbreak, a breakup, a divorce, um, like something, a miscarriage, right? Whenever they're going through something difficult that is leaving them in a state of mourning, they don't typically view themselves in a blessed state. But Jesus says you are in a blessed state. Why? Because you will be comforted. And most people would look at that and say, yes, but I'm not being comforted right now. I'm going through this hardship right now, and it doesn't feel like I'm blessed. But Jesus has this eternal mindset that he's going to encourage his followers to have over the course of this sermon. And he's going to point out that those who mourn in this life, ultimately, they will experience greater joy whenever they are ultimately comforted. Because if you didn't know the hardship that comes with death and decay and mourning, you wouldn't truly know the heights that joy can take you to, right? If you just lived your life at a constant stagnant of neither ups or downs, you would never really understand the beauty of life. The reason we appreciate sunsets and sunrises is because those are unique things that only show up at certain moments in the day. If the sky was always in a perpetual sunrise or sunset, we wouldn't truly appreciate it. If our life was constantly at this stagnant state of neutrality, we wouldn't appreciate the joy in life. We wouldn't appreciate the grace of God. And so those who mourn, they are blessed because one day they will be comforted. It's going to be amazing. Blessed are the lowly, for they shall inherit the earth, right? Who would expect the meek and the lowly people to be the ones to inherit the earth? Usually in the world that we currently experience, it's the people who are willing to go fight for what they think they deserve. It's the people who are loud and proud and boasting in their accomplishments. It's the tyrants of the earth who usually inherit the earth, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, blessed are the lowly. They're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. Yes, the kings and tyrants of this earth, they will inherit it for a time, and they will have it for a time, but in due time, this earth will pass away. And in due time, those people will pass away. And when they pass away, their inheritance will be lost. And the reward that they had on earth, that's all they're going to have. That is the reward. This is what Jesus is going to highlight later on in the sermon. However, those who are lowly and those who admit that they're lowly and those who are meek and mild and humble, they're the ones who are going to inherit the earth in the end. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Uh, once again, if you go to the Gospel of Luke, it just says, blessed are those who hunger for they shall be satisfied. It's talking about people who are literally poor and have no food. In the Gospel of Matthew, though, he's highlighting the spiritual component of that. If you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if you admit that you do not have righteousness in and of yourself, but every single day you find yourself aching for this righteousness and you find yourself longing to find some sort of righteousness that you can't have in and of yourselves, he says, I have good news for you. The day will come when you will experience that righteousness and you will be satisfied. And there is a component that we're going to see as this gospel unfolds and as you get into the book of Acts and stuff where the, God will give us his own righteousness. And that's really ultimately the argument that Jesus is going to be making throughout the whole sermon, that we need him to give us righteousness. But there still is a component where even nowadays, even though I have been given Christ's righteousness as a believer in Christ, where I still recognize I'm not righteous. And I still hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the more that I realize how much I need Christ's righteousness, it goes with it that I realize that I'm a sinner and I don't deserve anything that he's given. 
And so even now, though I've received Christ's righteousness, I hunger and thirst for it. And Jesus is comforting me and he's comforting us by telling us that the day is coming when we will experience that righteousness and we will be satisfied. And so that's the beauty, beauty in all of this, right? You hunger and it doesn't feel great, but it's kind of like whenever you've been fasting for a really long time and then you finally eat a burger and you're like, oh man, if I had never experienced that great hunger, I would not have appreciated this burger as well as I am right now. Same thing. You would never appreciate the righteousness of God being given to you unless you would realize your own poverty of righteousness. The Pharisees and Sadducees go around touting themselves as righteous, but Jesus says, no, the people in my kingdom are going to be the ones who admit that they're not righteous, and they're going to be left hungering for righteousness all the days of their life. They're blessed. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Um, typically, the thing that we're afraid of is that if we're merciful, people are going to treat us like a doormat, and they're going to stomp all over us. And how do we not have our love taken advantage of? Jesus says, don't worry about that. You're blessed if you show mercy because you will be shown mercy, maybe not by the people of this earth, but by God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, right? Uh, typically in our current world, people who want to achieve something great and people who want to rise in the ranks of society, they do so by being impure in heart, right? They go about all these different twisted schemes in order to work their way to the top. And what greater privilege is there than to see God? But Jesus says, you can't work your way there. You can't do it and you can't accomplish this by being impure in heart and wiling your way into God's presence. He says the people who are going to see God are those who are pure in heart and those who are simply living consistently with what God has called them to do. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Right? The people who are going to be adopted into the family of God are not those people who are out waging war and demonstrating that they are worthy to be made into the royal heirs, kind of like you would see in the Roman Empire at this time period, right? Um, you have plenty of emperors and Caesars at this time period who didn't have any sons, and so they needed to adopt somebody as a son, and the people that they would adopt as a son would be somebody who was known as being a good conqueror so he could expand the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, God isn't looking to adopt somebody who is out conquering things in a physical way and who is waging violence and war. Instead, God is looking for the people who are peacemakers. Those are the people that he wants to adopt as his heirs to his kingdom. And he says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is probably the most paradoxical of all of them. Blessed are those who are persecuted? Jesus, how am I blessed if I'm persecuted? That doesn't make any sense. It stands out to us because it's like, no, hardship is terrible. To be frank, hardship sucks. How am I blessed? How can I be having an abundant life when people are literally taking my life from me? But he says, yours is the kingdom of heaven because the reason you're doing this is because of righteousness. People are persecuting you because they see the righteousness that you are living and they see that you are living for the kingdom of heaven. And the reason why they are persecuting you is because they know you have the kingdom of heaven and it makes them jealous and it makes them angry and they want to suppress it so they don't have to constantly look at you. And it's because their own hearts testify against them. And so the very fact that you are being persecuted for righteousness sake testifies to the fact you already have the kingdom of heaven and that the kingdom of heaven is yours. And so those are the Beatitudes mostly. But then we get to verses 11 and 12. And this is where we take a turn, because if you haven't noticed, verses 11 and 12 kind of just stand out 
as different because verses three through 10, they already were bookended, right? You have, there's the kingdom of heaven. There's the kingdom of heaven. You have the first and the last one being present realities that can be experienced by those who identify with Jesus. And the promise is the exact same for those. And verses four through nine are all future realities that are promised to those who are afflicted and those who are suffering and those who are downtrodden. So it seems like verses three through 10 already are the entire list or the entire song. Then you get to verses 11 and 12 and it's just different, right? In fact, if you go to the Greek, um, you actually have verses three through 10. Uh, those are 70 words long in the Greek verses 11 and 12. That's 35. And so here you have this one blessing that in and of itself is half the length of the entire list of all the blessings we just read. And so you read it and you're like, Hmm, verses 11 and 12 stand out, but not only does it stand out because it's longer, but it also stands out because verses 11 and 12 actually expand on the promises of verse 10 because it's still talking about persecution. And so it's not a different blessing. It actually just expands on the blessing that preceded it. And then if that weren't enough, verses 11, 12 also stand out because it switches to the second person, right? No longer is he saying, blessed are those who do this, blessed are those who do this. Now he says, blessed are you. And so it's almost like as Jesus is talking, he turns to his disciples and he makes it clear that the things that he's talking about are not simply about anybody who is in this condition, but it's specifically about his disciples who are in this condition, right? He turns to them. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So here we see Jesus identifying what it means to be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It's to be persecuted because of him. Right? So apparently Jesus and righteousness, they equal the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Righteousness comes from Jesus, right? They're persecuting you and falsely saying all kinds of evil against you because of me. And he says, rejoice and be glad. What? Rejoice and be glad whenever people are spitting on me and whenever people are saying false things about me and they're spreading false rumors about me. How do you want me to rejoice and be glad? And he says, this is why. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus says, this is why you can rejoice and be glad, even though you are not experiencing present joy and gladness, right? Right now you are going through some immense hardship and that stinks and that's horrible. And I'm so sorry you're having to go through that, but you can rejoice and be glad even in this because your reward in heaven is great, right? Because guess what? Your joy and your hope is not rooted in this world. Other people, the people who are not peacemakers, the people who are not poor in spirit, the people who are not mourning, they're experiencing the reward here and now. And that's going to be a big theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. There are people who will receive the reward on this earth. Good for them. But then there are those who are going to receive the reward in heaven. And that is those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And so I would actually argue that verses 11 and 12 are the key to understanding the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so you actually have to read even the previous verses in the context of persecution. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit because of being persecuted. The reason why they are in the state of poverty is because they're being persecuted. They are mourning because they are being persecuted. They are lowly because they are being persecuted. They are hungering in the streets because they're being persecuted. They are having to show mercy 
because they're being persecuted and everybody's doing all these things against them and they are having to be merciful and not lash out. They are having to be pure in heart because they are being persecuted and it would be so easy to be deceptive and double-minded and weasel their way out of persecution, but instead they're not and they're sticking, sticking true. Blessed are the peacemakers. Why are they peacemakers? Because people are persecuting them and they're not fighting back. They're turning the other cheek. That is what Jesus is saying to them. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Why? They're being persecuted for the sake of him. Verses 11 and 12 give us the key to understanding the Beatitudes. These people aren't simply being blessed because they are in a state of poverty or in a state of hunger or in a state of mourning. They are being blessed because the reasons they have gotten there is because they were willing to bear reproach for the kingdom of Jesus. That is what he is saying. And that is truly, truly amazing. And he's promising them that if they suffer for his sake, he ultimately will turn things around. If you do this, and if you're willing to bear this reproach, you will be blessed. And in many ways, you are already blessed because of the future reality of the hope that you can find in me. And I'm going to highlight this again at the end of this video, but I just want you to realize how bold Jesus is. Like he's just coming out the, he's just coming out swinging, right? I mean, like this is a bold thing to say. He is making promises to people that really nobody but God himself has the business of making promises to, right? I mean, just a human king in and of himself to be saying things like this. Uh, these are like promises that you really can't like hold up to, right? I mean, the kingdom of heaven, this is talking about the afterlife. This is talking about eternity, Right? How can a simple king on earth make promises about eternity, right? So just inherent to the language Jesus is using, he is claiming to be more than just a human king. He is identifying himself as the Messiah, and he's making it very clear to them that even though he might not look how the Messiah expected, he is the Messiah they needed. And the Messiah is actually much greater and more impressive than anything that they could have possibly ever expected. He is the servant that Isaiah promised. But another thing that I need us to understand in order to truly um, just address this passage properly is that Jesus is promising that he is going to take care of the oppressed. And he promises that the oppressed are going to be blessed. If he's making those promises, then these promises on the other hand, like on the other hand, come as indictments against the oppressors, right? If the lowly are the ones who are blessed, then the people who are not lowly and the people who are making the other people lowly, those are the ones who are going to be judged. And just as a sober-minded reflection right now, I want us to recognize, I want us to actually examine our own hearts. What category do we fit into? Because um, if I'm being entirely honest with you, there isn't much I've had to suffer for my own faith. Um, I live in a pretty, I have a pretty privileged life. I have the opportunity to stand at a camera with a light shining on me and a fancy background just talking about the Bible. This should make us wonder, right? And I'm not saying that we have to go out and seek persecution or anything like that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that with great resources and with great power comes great responsibility. And if God has given us a privileged and luxurious life, we better be using the resources and the things that God has given us to help those who are lowly and to serve other people. Right? Because if not, then we don't fall into the category of people Jesus is describing here. Right? If we're not taking care of those who are lowly, lower than us, and if we are simply living 
you know, up in our, <laughs> up in our mansions and fancy houses and stuff like that uh, in our privileged society. And also keep in mind, whenever the Bible talks about rich people, it's not talking about people in mansions. It's talking about people who like knew where their next meal was coming from. We are the rich. And I just think that we, I, I don't want to move on past this without just addressing the reality of the fact that we are the, like, we are the ones who have experienced earthly rewards and those who have experienced earthly blessings. And I don't want us to move on without realizing that there might be some dissonance between us and the people Jesus is talking about here. Uh, because a lot of the times we try to force ourselves into this and we say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, Jesus is obviously talking about me. Let me find a way where I'm poor in spirit. I don't know. Maybe we need to reflect on it. Are you really poor in spirit? Are you really mourning? That's the question you need to ask. Don't just say, well, I know that I go to church every Sunday and therefore this has to be about me. No, I think we should genuinely reflect on this and we should genuinely ask, do I fit into this? Because there might be a call to action just in these opening verses right here. But here's the cool thing. If you find yourself not identifying with these people, over the course of the rest of the sermon, Jesus is going to give instructions on how we can adopt these characteristics in, an, in our lives here and now. That is the purpose of this sermon. Jesus says, these are the people that I want in my kingdom. And if you don't find yourself there, well, let me tell you how to be there. And so the rest of the sermon is going to be Jesus giving instructions and commandments. And he's going to teach us how to interpret the law correctly so that we can figure out how to embody these character traits in our lives right here and right now. But let's move on and let's talk about these last few verses right here. This is what I really want to just cover at the end of this video, because Jesus is going to also give some concluding thoughts about the type of people in his kingdom. So he's given the Beatitudes. He said, what type of people are blessed? And then in verses 11 and 12, he started talking to his disciples directly. He turns to his disciples and he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of me, for your reward will be great. And he continues to talk to the same group of people. I don't want you to distinguish this from the previous verses, right? It directly flows from it. He just said, you, you being the persecuted people. He's still talking to the same persecuted people. And he says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and to be trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus still speaking to the persecuted people that he was just addressing, the people who belong to his kingdom, he says that if you belong to my kingdom, you fulfill two primary roles. You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. So let's walk through these. You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, to be trampled underfoot by men. I've seen a lot of people teach on this and um, they'll try to figure out what exactly is he trying to communicate by salt on the earth and everything. And they'll, um, I even used to be guilty of this a long time ago. They'll like, just like go on Google and be like, what can salt be used for? And they'll look at like all the different things and they'll come up with like a list of like 20 different things salt could be used for. And they'll come up with parallels for all of it. I say, let's not do that, right? Let's not read too much into this. Let's let Jesus specifically explain what he's talking about. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? 
So when he's talking about salt, he's specifically talking about salt in regards to taste. And you can understand this from one perspective, just in general, even to in our current cultures nowadays, but I think it's even heightened if you go look back at Jewish culture. But let's talk about just our culture in first. We put salt on stuff to make it have flavor, right? Salt makes things beautiful, right? I mean, you can have one meal and, you know, it might taste all right, but if you throw a little bit of salt on there, man, that meal has become a five-star meal, right? And so there is this component of what kingdom citizens are meant to do and meant to accomplish in the world where they're supposed to add flavor to the world and they are supposed to make things better. And whenever a Christian walks into a room, things should get better, not necessarily from a physical stance, but whenever people are around you, you're adding flavor to life. That's ultimately what he's kind of communicating. But if you read this from a Jewish context, you realize that there's actually a lot more depth to what's being said here, right? Because salt was added to sacrifices. So we're not specifically just talking about food that was eaten by humans, but this is food that was offered to God as a pleasing aroma and a tasty sacrifice for him. And so what Jesus is ultimately saying to his persecuted followers is he's saying that the persecuted saints are like salt on an offering. And if they spread over the earth, they will make the earth into a pleasing sacrifice to God, right? That is the role of Christians in the world, right? If salt is added to sacrifices to make sacrifices pleasing unto God, well, one day this earth will become a burnt offering. One day this earth will become a holocaust. That's what the word holocaust means, by the way, if you didn't know that. Holocaust means burnt offering. One day this earth will be a burnt offering. And that's what John the Baptist said, right? I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me comes to baptize you with the spirit and with fire. Eventually this earth will dissolve like snow and it will burn. And the thing, the, the purpose of Christians is to salt the earth so that whenever that burning does come, the earth is like a pleasing sacrifice to God. And every single Christian on the face of this planet will be the salt that makes that sacrifice pleasing to God. And whenever saints are persecuted for righteousness sake, they are offering their bodies as living sacrifices. Do you see now why Paul says that in Romans? <laughs> That's the imagery of the gospel, right? Whenever you suffer for righteousness sake and whenever you go and you die for your faith, or if you live a life that is a living sacrifice, you're constantly denying yourself. You are giving yourself to God as a sacrifice, and you are the salt of the earth that makes that sacrifice pleasing unto him. However, on the other hand, if you aren't willing to deny yourself, and if you aren't willing to follow God no matter what the cost is, you'll be flavorless. If salt has lost its flavor, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out, to be trampled underfoot by men. If you're a person who identifies yourself as a Christian, but you're not denying yourself, and you're not going out and offering yourself as a living sacrifice, how are you going to be salty again? Right? How is your life going to be a pleasing sacrifice to God? Right? If salt isn't adding flavor to food, what purpose is it? What? You can go salt a city, right? That's what people would do whenever they would conquer a city. They would go out, they would destroy the city, and they would throw salt on the ground and trample it underfoot so that nobody could build on the city again because it would basically make it to where stuff couldn't grow anymore. Is that what you want to be? Do you want to be just a waste? Do you want to be something that 
takes life away, something that suppresses growth? Or do you want to be salt that is a pleasing sacrifice to God that makes everything tasty and that puts a smile on God's face as his people lay their lives down out of worship for him? That's what Jesus is calling his disciples to be. If you're persecuted for righteousness sake, you're like salt on a sacrifice and you're beautiful to God and you'll put a smile on God's face. But if you're not doing what Christians are called to do, if you're not living a life consistent with what he is going to outline in this sermon, if you are not going out and denying yourself and picking up your cross daily, then you're like salt that has lost its flavor. All it can do is just be thrown on top of a city, trampled underfoot so that nothing can grow. You don't want to be that. On the other hand, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. This imagery is probably pretty cool because Jesus is in the region of Galilee. He's sitting on a hill right now, and Jesus is the light of the world, talking to disciples who he is going to make the light of the world. Um, but one thing that I love, and this is true to Galilee even to this day, because um, I've been there multiple times. At nighttime, Galilee gets really, really dark. And even to this day, there is one city in Galilee that existed way back in Jesus' time that is set on a hill, and it is a light that casts light over the whole place. And that's a city called Tiberias. I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus and his disciples could see Tiberias from where they're sitting on the mountain right now. Traditionally speaking, um, where, like, we don't know, like, a lot of the places, if you go to Israel, a lot of the places that they tell you are the traditional sites, we have no reason. It's basically just people came along and like, hey, this could be a tourist trap. So, just so you know. <laughs> but if you go to Israel, there is a place that is traditionally, it's called the Mount of Beatitudes. It's the traditional location for where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. And you can see Tiberias from there. And at nighttime, it is pitch black in the region of Galilee, except for the city of Tiberias. It is a city set on a hill, and even in the midst of the night, it is a hopping place. And even to this day, it is the biggest city in that region, and it is still the primary light shining in the darkness. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus is using the city of Tiberias as an image for the people as he gives this sermon, right? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, right? If you're in this, like whenever it's nighttime and it's dark and you see this city set on a hill, you can't avoid it, right? It just, your eyes are drawn to it. That is what Christians are meant to be in the world. Jesus' followers are meant to be for the world as Israel was always intended to be, right? This was the goal that God had for the people of Israel going way back to the time of like Genesis, right? Whenever God talked to Abraham, he said, in you, I will bless all the world right? Israel did never, like, the issue with the people of Israel at the time of Jesus is that Israel had begun to think that they were special to God because they in, in and of themselves were special above all other people. But the reason why God made them special was so that they could be set apart and guide all other people to God. But they'd become so inward focused that Jesus is basically saying, hey guys, if you're my followers, you are going to fulfill the role that Israel was supposed to be. Jerusalem was supposed to be that city on a hill. You were supposed to go to Jerusalem and you were supposed to see the light shining in the temple and you were supposed to say, wow, I want to be there. But Jerusalem has gone astray. And so now Jesus says to his disciples, you're going to have to be the light in the world. 
you are going to have to be the city on the hill that can't be hidden. And I can't let you, like, if you're one of my followers, you can't put the light under a basket. You can't hide it, right? If you are called to be light, you need to live it out. There is no such thing as a private Christian. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not living for Jesus, right? If you are a follower of Jesus, your lifestyle should be different. And it's not the difference in lifestyle that saves you. But if you're only concerned with salvation, then I would argue that you're not saved at all. Because if you're only concerned with the act of getting saved, you're primarily focused on yourself. Our job is to focus on Jesus and to fall in love with Jesus. And one who falls in love with Jesus will be saved, but they won't simply stop at empty faith. And their faith will not simply be a dead faith. Instead, their faith will be a faith that says, I love Jesus so much, I will deny myself. I will pick up my cross. I will follow. I will live for him. And a person like that will be a light on the top of a hill. And you might ask yourself, how do I do this, right? How can I be the salt? How can I be the light? And Jesus makes it very clear in verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Why is it that we do good works? It's not to earn salvation. It's to testify about the king who has saved us, right? Out of our love for the king, we obey his commandments. And as a result of obeying his commandments, we spread his kingdom throughout the world. And we live like he did so that other people can see us and they can see our lifestyles and our lifestyles can testify about him. And they can say, wow, that person is like salt on food. They make life better. To be a friend with a Christian is to have an abundant life, right? Wow, that person is like a light on top of a hill. I can't stop looking at them because there's something about them that is different and it's attractive. And even when I try to look away, even in the corners of my eyes, I see the light in the distance, right? That is the effect that Christians should have. And we do that by showing our good works. And if we fail to obey him, our sacrifices will be tasteless and our lights will be covered. Right? If you are a Christian who claims to follow Jesus, but you're not living for him, you can't call yourself the salt, of the, earth, the salt of the earth or the light of the world. You can't do it. Because if you're a Christian who is not striving to obey Christ, you are a tasteless sacrifice and you are a light under a basket. Those are worthless. And I know that might be a harsh teaching, but that's what Jesus is saying right here. And I don't want you to miss it. It is a harsh teaching. It is a very harsh teaching. However, if you do obey Christ, and if you strive to walk in obedience to him, your sacrifices will be savory and your light will shine bright. God will be pleased with you and other people will be attracted to the kingdom that you belong to. That is our goal. And as if this teaching weren't harsh enough, as we begin to close this up, I want to highlight another thing. There is no other alternative source of flavor or light that Jesus talks about here. He says, you, my disciples, are the salt of the earth. There's no other salt of the earth. You, my disciples, are the light of the world. There is no other light of the world. And so, if Christ's followers fail to live for him, I don't want you to miss out on the implications of this. If Christ's followers do not live for him and salt the earth, there will be no pleasing sacrifice for God. If Christ's followers do not go out and live for him, there will be no light for the world and the entire world will continue to walk in darkness. And if the world is walking in darkness and if there is no pleasing sacrifice, that is not on them, that is on us. 
because we, as his followers, are the ones responsible for spreading the salt and spreading the light. We are the ones responsible for making this world into a pleasing sacrifice for God. We are the ones who are responsible for spreading light into the world so that the dark can give way to dawn. That is our responsibility. And in other places in the Gospels, Jesus is going to say that he's concerned that is when he returns to earth, will the Son of Man find any faith? Because we're sinful and broken people. And even though we're the salt of the earth, we love being flavorless. And even though we're the light of the world, we love putting that light under a basket because we live according to the fear of man and not according to the fear of God. And that's something that Jesus is going to challenge over the course of this entire sermon. You can't live according to the fear of man. You have to live according to the fear of God. That is essential. It's absolutely essential. And so to close this out, I want to highlight something I already highlighted in the Beatitudes. And I just want to highlight how bold Jesus is when he is saying this. He is making some authoritative claims. He is saying that he himself is the linchpin. He himself is the hinge by which people will enter or not enter the kingdom of heaven. He is saying that his followers and his followers alone are the only people who can guide people into genuine worship. His people and his people alone are the only ones who can shine light into the darkness. His people and his people alone are the only ones who can help creation find its created purpose and come to follow God. That's what Jesus is suggesting right here. And I don't want you to miss that. Because if you read through this and you don't understand the authority authority and the big claims Jesus is making here, then you're not reading the same sermon that the people of Israel heard at this time period. Because at the end of the sermon, the people are going to say, whoa, we have never heard somebody teach with such authority as this. A lot of the times we look at this and we miss out on the implications of what Jesus is saying. You know, in John chapter 14, whenever Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, he's making the same claims right here. He is saying, you cannot be right with God unless you become one of my followers. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you obey me and unless you submit to me and unless you make me your king. Because he is identifying himself as the servant promised by Isaiah. He is identifying himself as the king of the kingdom. And if you don't identify yourself with the king, how can you belong to his kingdom? Anybody who tries to sneak into the kingdom from some other way is going to be kinged out, uh, is going to be kicked out. He's going to be found out. He's going to be kicked out. He's going to be banished forever. Jesus saying, I am the king. I am the anointed servant of God who has come to raise up the downtrodden, to raise up the afflicted. And in order to be part of my kingdom, you have to recognize that you are one of those people. And then you need to repent. And you need to come to me. And if you come to me, I will make you the salt and the light of the earth and the world. You might face persecution, but even when you face persecution, you will be blessed. And that's how Jesus decides to open up the Sermon on the Mount. And that's how he identifies his citizens in his kingdom. That being said, that's all I've got for y'all today. Once again, thank y'all so much for listening in. And I just want to remind you that if you want more biblical content like this, I have plenty more on the Now Let's Be Honest YouTube channel. Also, if you don't mind, leaving an honest rating and review for this podcast would be a super huge help for helping spread the word. Until next time, I've been David Tate, this has been Now Let's Be Honest, and I look forward to moving further along in our study next week. Be sure to keep a smile on your face and don't let anybody steal your joy. Maranatha.